Dude, remember in music school though, when it was sad, but also just painfully obvious whenever you saw someone in the music school buildings that were not a music student? Oh yeah. <laughs> Even though it was a big school of music and we had four buildings in the music school with many levels and hallways and stuff, there's someone walking around not sure where things are. It's like, oh, okay, they're taking some elective music class. But it, w- it was just so entertaining how easy it was from the opposite end of the hallway, 400 feet away, you could you could tell that yeah <laughs> that they're new <laughs> i have a romantic notion that there's also something in the way that they comport themselves that's slightly different uh maybe it's that they don't have the existential dread of having either just come from or, or, or going to a lesson <laughs> they're 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 in the music school buildings but they actually are you know at peace with themselves so it's like, oh, there's there's no way there's no way this guy's a full-timer here yeah, they're like weirdly confident. It's like, like, <laughs> yeah, he's walking into like a practice room. Like, I got this. <laughs> yeah, like, yeah. No, 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 no. You haven't spent no, enough no, no. time here, kid. <laughs> Should we just yeah, dive into yeah. follow up? Yeah. So let's do some follow up. So la- last time we talked about the movie Whiplash by Damien Chazelle. That was fun, and I did hear some feedback. And one comment was, we both said that the that the movie was fairly realistic about about the way that it portrayed, I guess, music school, music life, whatever you want to call it. And one comment was that, that the movie is actually not realistic at all in that in that sense, because a real music student would be doing like music with his friends and there'd be more practicing. There'd be more like listening to music. There would be more going to other classes. Like it wouldn't be so myopically focused on, you know, the relationship between these two people. So in a sense, it's, it's a very, um, it's very unrealistic. And I, I know where um, that person is coming from, but I just want to say, you know, it, it is it is a movie. I think that <laughs> the, the movie that this person wants to see would be little more than a documentary about conservatory life, which may or may not have its uses, but it wouldn't be a very interesting movie. Um, yeah, there's it, plenty so, of vlogs for that. Yeah, <laughs> on exactly. So a it, day in the life of Juilliard. <laughs> exactly. So... You know, of course, it is stylized. Mm-hmm. When, when I think we both meant when, when we said that it's realistic, we, we meant that it, it contains a pith of truths in the sort of spirit of it, right? In the essence of it, not, not that literally this is what music school looks like. I think we both speak meant for yourself, that. man. Uh, no, no. Yeah, it's fair. I get what they're saying. And sure, we did say it's fairly realistic. But yeah, I think we meant more like the, the themes are realistic. Yeah. Right. Like the, the spirit of it. Yeah. Yeah. It's a movie. It's Some things are over-exaggerated. Some creative liberties are taken. But it's also a fictional music school, too. So. Yeah. <laughs> Shade for conservatory. Yeah. Which, yeah. yeah. That does pass the sniff test. That sounds like, you know, if you think of uh, Manus Conservatory, Curtis. Yeah. Yeah. Schaefer, yeah. I think, passes muster. Yeah, no, I yeah, I get I get where they're coming from. Ideally, this guy is like a jazz student in conservatory, would also be doing combos and doing improv class and have his music theory class and but, but what you, other but, tedious classes are we exactly? Have to take? Yeah, he's, he's, he's in like his English comp class because he failed his writing portion of the ACT in high school. Like we could make this bo- we could make this movie as boring as you want, man. <laughs> His rock climbing and PE credit. <laughs> yeah. Like, let's face it, in Jurassic Park. No. And I'm going to take this a different direction. You probably don't know where I'm going with this. Um, like, why is Jeff Goldblum there? Why do they need a chaos mathematician, you know, to vet the, the safety of Jurassic Park? <laughs> like, oh, that's a good point. That's why I never thought about that. Yeah. Why is a chaos theorist you know, on that helicopter to begin with. But it's because it's a movie. Yeah, yeah it's because it would be interesting, yeah. yeah. No, that's, Not that's... what you thought I was going to say, right? <laughs> no, no, I thought you were going to go for the more obvious angle. 
have you guys watched the show? I, I know I'm a little I'm a little late to the party. The show's been around for like a few years, and I think season three kind of wrapped up, or, or that was released not too long ago, and they're now filming season four. But anyway, I'm late to the bandwagon, and I'm obsessed with the TV show Succession on HBO. Hmm. Have you heard of this? Are you familiar with this? Uh, I have not seen it. I don't. I couldn't even tell you anything about it. But I, I have suddenly seen a lot of people tweeting about it recently. So it seems to have blown up a lot. It's surprising to me that you said it's been around for a few years. I haven't. I hadn't heard about it until maybe a couple months ago. And then all of a sudden, every other tweet on my timeline is about Succession. So did it? Did it suddenly get very popular? That may have been what happened. Yeah, I'm trying to figure out why I started watching it. I mean, I had heard a bunch about it, and it seemed cool. But yeah, I mean, society works in funny ways. Like, like why was, you know, the Queen's Gambit such the sensation it was globally, right? Yeah. But yeah, no, um, I mean, just at a high level, it's basically, it chronicles the dynamics and life of a rich media mogul family. It's sort of loosely very loosely based off of the Murdoch family or something, or that was like an inspiration for it. Hmm. What matters is not so much the topic, even though it's interesting, it's just really well made. But the reason I want to bring it up is the music. I think you would love the music. I'm obsessed with the soundtrack. I've been listening to it a bunch. Uh, the score is by Nicholas Bertel, and he's he's a really fantastic, like young up and coming composer who's doing really cool things. He also did the score for, uh, he's gotten a few Oscar nominations. I don't think he's won yet. He did win the Emmy for best theme and maybe best score. I, th- I think there's best theme song for hmm. a dramatic series for his score for, uh, his score for Succession. But film-wise, he did the score for Moonlight. He did the score for The Big Short. He's done the score for a handful of other things. Uh, but anyway, he's starting to become like a big name on the scene. And what's cool, cool. about him is if you listen to any of the interviews with him, there's a bunch of them. I mean, he seems like such a cool guy, but he's also very, like, he's a very classical person, but his scores aren't. Hmm. Like, and so he was, I want to say he went to Juilliard for piano and stuff. And it's funny, I love how um, so many of the people, because he's a film composer, he's based in New York. And uh, I just love how there's, like, a crowd of film composers that refuse to leave New York City. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and moved to LA essentially. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, and those, same those in the London. Ones, I, I have a feeling, well. in a sense, yeah. There's also a crowd of composers in London, yeah. but I think that are, that's more like I understand that. I mean, there's so many recording studios in London, so so many film scores are recorded there anyway. So yeah, it, there's such a film score scene itself in London, but New York. I mean, there's a big music scene obviously in New York, but composing scene for film, it's there's not many scores that are. Not, not many films are produced in New York, right? But there's a lot of composers there, and I don't know, I guess they love the thing there, they're from there, I guess, and it's kind of entertaining, and he's one of those, so. <laughs> Just a quick side note, I mean, I, I will say it does surprise me how much the film industry actually gets people moving to L.A., you know, because it's not, it's not something that necessarily would occur to me. Like, if I were a composer living in New York and I was getting a lot of film gigs, my thought would be to stay living in New York, but just fly over there for a couple weeks every time I want to do some kind of some some kind of like studio work, right? Um, yeah, I think it's the other way around actually. So I think a lot of composers move to LA, you know, to work oh, in the restaurant and stuff, and like you know, kick off their career because yeah. you can go to party. The whole networking game, right? You, I see. Everyone's okay. there. All the agents are there. The producers are there. L.A. is really, uh, that's that's where, that is a city of broken dreams over there. That's, yeah, that's, it's a who's who sort of town too, right? It's like, like when you're, 
I mean, I guess I don't disagree with this, but when you're invited to a party, you like ask the guest list. <laughs> you don't care where it is. You just care yeah. who's going, which to be fair, that's the way I approach it as well. Yeah. <laughs> um, but anyway, um, back to Nicholas Bertel. No, he's great. Um, and there's actually a YouTube video of him playing uh, a piano and like walking through his approach to the score of Succession. Mm. And it's it's pretty insightful and stuff. But But yeah, anyway, what I was getting at was, yeah, he's like a traditional music school educated pianist sort of musician slash composer and his score for succession i think is so cool because it's you can kind of tell he's classically trained but it's a very modern score and here i'm just going to send you the theme song but this is a good kind of overview too and he, he says in the, in the interview he wrote the theme song last he wrote the whole score for like the first season and then started to write the theme i am listening That, that little riff that, that's originally in a piano and then the strings take it over, the descending line, that almost sounds like a quote of something, but I can't quite place it. Um, yeah. It sounds like, it, it sounds like you know, Chopin met EDM or something. I don't know. Right, right. It's cool. Like in that one theme, in just, the, just 10 seconds of that theme, it's kind of the whole thesis for the entire show. It's like the new guard, the kids of the company trying to wrestle control from their father who's the founder of the media company so it's like the new guard trying to take out the old hence like the hip-hop versus the very classical yeah. viennese sounding like piano part of it yeah and stuff and that's so I, I mean i just think that's so yeah interesting is the word like so curious and so cool and so awesome right just like the whole idea of the show can be encapsulated in just three seconds of music right yeah it makes sense if you explain it, but also it might just make sense subliminally if you just are listening to it, even not thinking about it. It might just sort of evoke a certain mood in the listener, you know? It's, it's yeah. not necessarily something that needs to be explained. Right. As I always kind of say with that sort of stuff, like, you may not have noticed, but your brain did. Yeah, that's a good way to put right. it. Yeah. But no, I love the soundtrack. And Nicholas Bertel, if you're listening, you know, let's let's grab a beer. I'm not in New York right now, but I will fly out to hang out. <laughs> <laughs> You got to get him over to San Francisco so he can try out your new um, Kawaii. Oh, hell yeah. My new digital piano. Yeah, oh, baby. Yeah. yeah. Which sounds great, by the way, on, on, your, um, on your cocktail piano hour. It sounded awesome. Yeah, thanks, man. No, it was great. It was great. And I don't have to practice anymore. It just kind of does it yeah. for me. <laughs> You're done. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's the dream that ultimately all instrument sellers sell, right? You know, yeah, this that, is a, really this is, is the thing that's going to solve all your all your problems, and it never no, is. In, in, so in the trumpet world, the equivalent is the sweeter this yeah. mouthpiece. That's this mouthpiece. Yeah, you never have to worry about a high note again, huh? Or endurance, or accuracy, <laughs> or any of that. Yeah, this will this will solve all your problems. Yeah, for ninety bucks.
So you were saying that that you got some you got some concerts on the books, right? I do. All right, my orchestra, the San Francisco Philharmonic. Which, if you don't follow us, you sh- you totally should. I, I guess this has turned into a shameless plug already. <laughs> yeah, that's no, all good. <laughs> but yeah, no, we're an awesome group. We're uh, you know, we're a semi-professional or orchestra. I would I would call us. So, you know, we we have a lot of fun, but we put on great concerts, and we're we're real serious about what we do. And anyway, I just got the the set list <laughs> for our upcoming concert. And a few of these pieces I know fairly well. One I know decently well, and the other one I couldn't pick out at all, actually. And I might be embarrassed to to disclose that, but there it is. So, curious what you take from this program, Shooter. So, Hit me. in this order, looks like it's going to be The Palladio by Carl Jenkins, the Allegro from that. Okay. I don't know this piece. I don't know that piece Do either. Know? Oh, interesting. Okay, good. All right. What, who, uh, I don't even know who Carl Jenkins is. is. Am I being a total moron right now? Yeah, okay. I was fearing that you would be like, oh, how could you not know Carl? He's Sir Carl Jenkins. Anyway, okay. Well, we don't know much about this, so... Then we have the Dvorak String Serenade Number One. I actually don't know that well. Like I know, I know that it exists, but what do you think of it? That's <laughs> no, all right. It's, okay. okay, it's fine. next two are pieces I adore, um, both the composers and the pieces. So it is, of course, Saint-Saint, Introduction, and Rondo Capriccioso. I love almost everything he, he wrote, Camille Saint-Saint. Um, I think he was just a miraculous composer. That that was just wonderful. <laughs> yeah, and that's a really fun piece. Yeah, um, okay, I'm going to be the trumpet the player playing on it. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, you're, you're going to go Nikaryakov on this? Oh, God. Yeah, Sergei Nikarikov, he's one of, yeah, he somehow performed that, r- recorded that on trumpet, and it's flawless. It is just, that guy's superhuman. I mean, yeah, I like, I think you'd agree, he plays it better than, like, most violinists. He does, yeah. Play it. <laughs> like, it's... Yeah. <laughs> he's, yeah, like, no, playing that... it, and I'm like, oh, he's definitely hitting all the notes, which I had not heard before. <laughs> you know, most, most violinists, they'll just, you know, they'll scrub away at a, at a, at a, at a lick. But Nikarikov's over there, you know, he's hitting each one with a laser pointer, you know.
So that's that. And then, of course, Beethoven Symphony Number no. 5. Nice. Yeah. Small piece. But yeah, he may have heard of it. Heard, yeah, yeah, yeah. We were talking last time about how, you know, Mahler 5 has this problem where the opening is so famous that people don't really listen to the to how awesome the rest of it is. And I think Beethoven 5 is um, is a similar thing. You know, the, the real meat of it happens happens after the opening. I wonder if there was any connection when Mahler was writing his Fifth Symphony. I wonder if he was consciously riffing off of Beethoven's Fifth Symphony because that, has, kind of that was that. so iconic. And there's that triplet figure is, is sort of rehashed um yeah the, it's a four note motif da, yeah da, da, da. yeah, it's, yeah. So it's not it's not a triplet in, in beethoven but um, yeah that's right <laughs> but it is a triplet in Mahler, correct it is a triplet yeah yeah but yeah that that four note motif is is reiterated and they're both um heroic symphonies you know yeah in beethoven oh, yeah. that's that's um and that's actually one of the reasons why it's not one of my favorites of Mahler's either it's not mm. anything to do with it being a subpar composition it's just the mood of the symphony is it's a heroic symphony, and I, mm-hmm. I much prefer his his um, more introverted sort of inward-facing symphonies, I guess. Um, but uh, yeah, yeah, I wonder yeah. if there was any conscious connection to to Beethoven Five when he was writing his Fifth Symphony. That's a really good, really good point. Yeah, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I'd, I'd be surprised if there wasn't, you know, because yeah, he was a pretty smart guy. I'm, I'm sure he knew <laughs> yeah. what he was doing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Any thoughts, more thoughts on the name of your chamber group? I had a few, actually, if, if I could quickly run them by you while we're, yeah. while we're talking about it. Um, so I don't know if I said this before, but the, the Circle City Ensemble is a, oh, is a sort that's of... Oh, that's kind of cool. It's a pretty, like, conservative one. Yeah, um, and Circle in reference to the circle that's on the flag of Indianapolis and, yes, and in the yeah, downtown. Yes, and, and I think it's, cool. that, that, that is, like, the, the nickname for, Indi- for Indianapolis. So Gotcha. I was thinking about uh, like Kurt Vonnegut references because you know he's obviously he's from here, he's, so um, he, 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 he has a novel called uh, "The Sirens of Titan." So I had the idea of we could call ourselves the uh, the Sirens of Circle City, <laughs> uh, which is I think, which is I think Slaughterhouse Six is what I, I, I threw that out there. Surprisingly, it didn't go over <laughs> too well. Uh, I don't I don't think the uh, I don't think the sponsors are going to lot that one up. <laughs> I see, I see. Hmm. Um, They're lost. I'm trying to work in prohibition somehow, the Ooh. or like the twenties because we're in the twenties again. I like the sound of that. I like the I like where this is going. You might love this. You might hate it. I, I, I you know just throwing ideas out there, but if you don't use it, I might. Yeah. <laughs> the stirred, not shaken. <laughs> like, Ooh, that's a good idea. Actually, I do yeah. like that. Uh, that plays into our just, opinion that stirred is also better than shaken, as any like real martini connoisseur would yeah would vouch for. Exactly. Um, that's a good I don't idea. Know. Call it import export. Import export, uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Dude, there's something here. That's actually not know. a bad idea. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, if, yeah. If we ever uh, start a chamber group, that's got to be the... <laughs> <laughs> import export. <laughs> yeah, we have a Cayman Islands account. Just yeah, yeah. <laughs> our flag is of Bermuda. <laughs> like, like, just our... <laughs> We don't pay taxes. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, 
Yeah, the, the the best one may just be the Circle City Ensemble, just because... That's not bad. That's um, not bad. Yeah. You know, there, there's, there are times when you want to be, like, wacky, and then there are times where you want yeah. the thing to just sort of disappear. Yeah. Like, I don't want the name to be, like, a topic of conversation, you know? Right. I want the I want the actual music to be the conversation, so... Yeah, I'll, I'll start the, the stirred, not shaken... Um, yeah. jazz trio. <laughs> there you go. That's actually that's actually a really hey good. hey you know yeah. The martini does also have three ingredients. So does Shit, it? Did I count dude. that right? Yeah 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 yeah. There you go. Dude. Something there. You might want to get that domain and lock it down. Dude, <laughs> oh. dude, I have to search right now. Is it <laughs> open? Okay, let's see. Uh, fuck. Uh, stirred. Um, Schreeder. Uh, two R's, right? <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> okay, okay. <laughs> yeah, it's available for five bucks. Oh, because I misspelled it. <laughs> okay. Knock on wood. Okay, so here's update. Um, so both stirred not shaken. So stirred not shaken.com is taken. But this is one of my things. I If I could change one thing about the universe, this might be it. Where it's taken, but it's not being used for anything. Like if you're not using a domain, I think you, you have like six months to do something with it or else you should lose it yeah at the very least like redirect it somewhere yeah yeah it's exactly geez so um stir not shaken jazz is also not taken uh but i looked it up no it's a jazz duet based in chicago called stir not shaken Ah. and they look kind of cool yeah they're doing like the stuff i would want to do like american songbook jazz just piano and vocals when in spain for reasons I don't explain I remain enjoying a brew Don't deplore my fondness for fundador You know how a fundador can lead to a few I love how we're still recording and we're talking <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> um. Yeah, uh, this should be an ad for Hover right here. Dude, I'm sorry. I have to check. Is there is there a Stir Not Shaken podcast? Let's check. Yeah, there's a very active Stir Not Shaken podcast. It looks kind of awesome, though. Oh, really? Is it about so, booze? It's all about booze. Um, I think they have about how to drink here. better. So they talk, have an episode about how to make it like high tail, highball cocktails. I have an episode on Japanese whiskey. They have Ooh. Scotch Part 1 and 2, Manhattan episode, Old Fashioned Part 2. Dude, okay, this looks like a great podcast, actually. Dude, yeah, they they just got themselves two new solid subscribers. I think. I think so. I think I am I am subscribed. All right, guys. Time again for another round of over, under, and properly rated. I ha- have one for you, Streeter. Rhapsody in Blue, by George Gershwin. Over, under, or properly rated. It really depends the way you think about it too, because I can I can almost make a case for each one, but I'm curious yeah. you personally what do you think. Well, just a little meta commentary. When I was editing the podcast last time, I, was, I thought it was funny that I thought me and you were kind of saying basically the same thing. Like our, we had the same vibe on each <laughs> of the answers, but I kept saying that things were overrated. So I think that's just like our attitude difference. Like I'm kind of a little bit more grumpy than you are generally. So <laughs> that's true. That's true. Yeah. So. I'm going to say that Rhapsody in Blue is underrated. I was going to say the same thing. I, I was worried yeah. you'd say, oh, I'm not worried. I thought you'd say overrated. I'm saying this actually part, partially to, to repent for my sins. Okay. Saying, <laughs> of saying, say, saying that Mahler I, 5. I know that's what you thought, but okay. Yeah, exactly. 
You're the last person I never I thought I'd ever hear that come out of their mouth. <laughs> yeah, if we're actually doing that, man, this we're in for a long podcast. But. <laughs> Oh, um, boy. Um, no, but I'm, I'm saying that partially to correct for, for my reasoning with Mahler 5 last time, which I thought was, gotcha. was pretty shoddy when I was listening back to it. I think it, it's the same thing where people just get caught up on the opening. People get caught up on the sort of famous licks in it, and it's just underrated in its totality how wonderful a piece it is, you know. That second movement, are they technically movements or whatever it is? I think that, they are technically movements. Yeah. The slow part in the middle is just... yeah. I think that's such a beautiful little tune. And that, that part is quite famous, so you know, it's yeah. it's not like that's a hidden gem of the piece, but right, right. there's something in the way that, that the pacing of the piece goes that's brilliant. Like I, I don't really ever get tired of hearing it, and that's that's a rare yeah. quality in a piece. There are some wonderful pieces. They sag in some places or they just feel rushed in others where yeah. whereas with, it's really well paced. You're right. Yeah. yeah. It's just a pleasure to listen to to the whole thing and I will say I have a record a vinyl record that we found somewhere I don't even remember where now but you would mm. love this oh yeah it's an old record and it's it's like a piano roll it's like oh, a wow. it's a record yeah. of like piano rolls and and there's a recording of George Gershwin playing Rhapsody in Blue on, on the piano heck yeah um, and I, I don't know exactly know how that would have worked like a piano roll captured his playing and then they played that back and then recorded that maybe that's maybe yeah there are some recordings of him playing as well right right like yeah i mean it was you know the earlier days of recording but 20s and 30s yeah there's definitely there's records from then yeah. so, so there's this recording yeah. of him playing on the piano okay. and i don't i'm not sure if i can find it online but if i can i'll i'll send it to you but i think it's really great because most people nowadays when they play it they play it with a lot of push and pull right there's a lot of sentiment in the way they play it they they do a yeah. lot of like rubato and a lot of like slowing down into the climaxes of, of phrases and stuff it's very effective that kind of throws off the thing that i think is the best facet of rhapsody in blue which is the pacing and when i was listening to george gershwin play it it was a revelation because he plays it in a very unsentimental way like it's very straightforward there's no i mean he obviously changes tempo for the slow movement but yeah. on the whole there's no rubato he plays it very classically it just it was almost a perfect piece the way that he played it, you know? Thank you for flying United. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I forgot about yeah. that. Yeah. Yeah. No, they, they, I forget how much money United paid, but it was back in the 80s or early 90s. They paid the Gershwin estate. Was it like $40 million for the rights to use Rhapsody in Blue for like their Sonic brand? Not enough. Um, yeah. And that's why I see it too. I'm like, really? Okay. That's, that's how much you sell out for. Okay. <laughs> 40 million bucks is, is going wait for, <laughs> for, for selling out these days, I guess. That's <laughs> They came to this country from everywhere else. And now, the airline that's uniting the world is ready to take you back. United. The airline whose service made it number one across the Pacific. Takes you across the Atlantic to cities throughout Europe, including service to London's Heathrow. United to Europe. Come see what we're made of. Come fly the friendly skies. 
yeah, I'm going to say underrated as well. Yeah, I adore the piece. I mean, I again, I adore most of Gershwin in general, so it kind of goes hand in hand. It's just so wonderful. It's so unique. I mean, I mean, even in the Ken Burns jazz documentary, they talk about it. It was considered a piece of experimental music when it came out and when it was premiered at Carnegie Hall in the 20s. Really? Like, it was... Yeah, because if you fast forward to, yeah, when it was premiered sometime in the 20s. Jazz was yeah. street music back then. You would never play that in a concert hall. I mean, it's not like today where there's big band jazz, con- there's jazz in conservatories, as we've been talking about for a few <laughs> episodes now. Yeah, that was that was not how it was done uh, back then. And George Gershwin, again, was a very, I mean, he was one of the best pianists of the 20th century. I mean, he was a phenomenal pianist. And yeah, this piece for orchestra and jazz and solo jazz piano and yeah it was definitely radical for its time and Hmm. as the saying kind of goes yeah George Gershwin he's the guy that took American music he took jazz threw a tux on it and put it in the concert hall and Rhapsody in Blue was in so many ways the beginning of that and yeah like I just feel like there's so many like orchestral jazz right is maybe a way to think about it there's so many pieces that harken back to that so many pieces of Bernstein pieces of uh, I mean, even pieces of Copeland that kind of have that uh, feel to them. It has punched above its weight and like impact. And it's also just such a, it's so fun. And there's so many great recordings too. And there's so much opportunity. I think Gershwin intentionally put in there for the artists to take their own, you know, their own spin on it, right? Like, Were, were you telling me yeah. that the that famous opening clarinet solo was originally not written as a glissando? Yeah, I was, yeah. What, can, can you refresh my memory on the story there? Yeah, the story was it was it was just a scale. In one of the rehearsals, um, Gershwin heard the clarinetist fooling around with it, and and yeah, he's like, no, let's do that instead. So that 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 glissando is just so, it's just like so iconic now. Rhapsody in Blue is a perfect piece, I think, for Fantasia, because the piece itself almost is a story, just musically. It would be so fun, I bet, to animate to and create your own your own visual story now. But yeah, I absolutely yeah. love that one. And then you hear that opening gliss in the music, and it just feels like Manhattan, right? Yeah. Just, there's a reason, you know, um, so so much of it was used in Woody Allen's film Manhattan. Yeah, yeah. A, a lot, a lot of Gershwin in there before Fantasia did. It, before they made that association with the Manhattan skyline and the opening to Rhapsody in Blue, yeah. Woody Allen did. So uh, that Bernstein recording with the uh, LA Philharmonic from back in the days, uh, it's up there with my favorite recordings of it because it's the one where the clarinet does the glissando a second time and the trumpet comes in with the harmon mute. Hmm. It's the one that just has the most seamless transition from clarinet to muted trumpet. You don't even hear the trumpet 
like attack the note and come in or you, you don't even hear the entrance of the trumpet i think you know which moment i think i've shared that recording yeah you with have you. yeah yeah you, you shared that with me and it is it is as amazing as you say it is love to think too in the recording session you know it's one of those things that you can't rehearse it just happened that way and yep i, I want to think like lenny like heard that looked up from the piano and like gave a wink like <laughs> yeah that is certainly one of those moments where that happens and you're like okay this is our take and whatever else <laughs> we have to do around it to make that work that's yeah. fine we'll do that but this is our take <laughs> yeah, yeah right right yeah <laughs> No, absolutely. Absolutely. So, um, dude, dude, I'm glad you agree that you think Rhapsody in Blue is underrated. And yeah. um, there's this um, young young Polish girl. Um, I'm going to search her name. She's, you know, she's a good, like, p- pianist. Um, uh, but she's not, like, famous or anything. I think she's still a student or something. But here, Poland. So she recorded this when she was 15. That was six years ago. And her name... Um, I'm going to butcher this so bad, but something like Maya Babiska or something. Maya Babiska. That sounds like I'm saying the right letters. Yeah, yeah just uh, say it with confidence. So Maya Babiska. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, no. So for the cadenza, she improvises her own and stuff. Oh, cool. And uh, Or she wrote her own at least. It's a really cool cadenza she takes that's really different, but very Gershwin-y and stuff. She, like, if I told you Gershwin wrote this as the original one, I would totally believe you. It totally sounds like Gershwin. And, and I was like, bravo, bro. That, that is, that's the way you should do it. And I'm sure Gershwin will be proud. That's awesome. <laughs> Don't don't take this the wrong way. Um, I'm proud of you. 
<laughs> I was I was so <laughs> I have so um I was so when I was bringing it up I was so expecting to like have to go into like defense mode like have to like convince you that, that, yeah. that no no it's like better than you think it is like you know if you actually you know I was already preparing that that whole gear in my head but yeah, yeah I'm pleasantly surprised yeah. there you go you caught me in a good mood but anyway yeah no wraps it in blue so all right underrated wow yeah yeah uh, underrated uh, okay. so that one gets like i think we should have like like a st- seal of approval sound effect when, when yes. we agree on it. <laughs> yeah 100 percent. yeah yeah so right, yeah <laughs> so ladies and gentlemen gershwin's rhapsody in blue is underrated <laughs> The ITL stamp. There it is. Yeah. Hilarious. And I think we've had one so far. I think it's. Yeah, I think we've had standing ovations in this. So. Oh, we both agree. Oh, that's right. Yeah, so yeah. this is the second one. Okay, you're right. Yeah. So. Cool. That's, that's ITL cool. in a nutshell. ITL, we don't like standing ovations. We do like Rhapsody in Blue. <laughs> yes. Oh, <laughs> uh, cool. Okay. So, all right. I had one that, yeah, we spent a good chunk of time. We might cut part of that, but even if we do yeah. cut, it's going to be a little bit. But yeah, no, it was good. I mean, you know, we don't really have a topic today, so, you know, it's good. Yeah. <laughs> As opposed to, you know, all the other days when, when we totally have a plan for what we <laughs> want to talk about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If there is a problem with that of the show, it is that we are two plants. So, yeah, here I'm like we're like buying domain names on the side. <laughs> yeah. We're subscribing to other podcasts while we're recording. Yeah. Uh, dude, the stirred not shaken duet. They have a pretty good logo too, actually. Good for them. I don't know why I'm, I'm like hearing that, checking out their dates. Yeah, so it's in here. Like, coming out, like... T- talk about being distracted while we're recording. Dude, dude, if I was in Chicago, I would go check these guys out. Maybe, maybe if um, the next time I'm in Chicago to get my flute fixed, which is going to be pretty soon. Um, I'll meet you there. Yeah, we can. Yeah, I was going to say we could plan it so that we could randomly show up, and they're like, oh, how'd you find out about us? And we're like, well, you better get a drink because it's a long story. <laughs> dude, I'm at, yeah, I'm on the website for the City Gate Grill right now. It looks amazing. <laughs> like, this place looks so good. Um, they're playing there next month. Music theory. Music theory. I Over, love it. Overrated, underrated, or properly rated. Yeah, I, I do have some pretty strong opinions on this sort of stuff. <laughs> I, I'm genuinely curious because this is something yeah. that I had very strong opinions about. And then as I've been getting older, I find myself being able to play devil's advocate for more and more things. And this is one of them. I'm ha- I've been having a crisis of faith. So, Chris, tell me what I need to think about music theory. All right. I will show you the way, Schweder. I will, I will teach you. <laughs> So okay, I'm gonna say, oh, okay. But to, to pick to pick the rating is interesting. In the context of just being me, and the context of I guess this podcast, I'm gonna say I'm gonna say underrated. Okay. All right. Um, and I'm coming to that from 
just thinking of the conversations we would overhear in music theory class and stuff, like our fellow students and stuff. Like, oh, I came to here to like perform music, not study music. I'm have a degree in performance. What that what's that all about? You know, I always thought like physics or biology is the is like the music performance. Like it's the science. It's the music performance. Math is the theory equivalent. Like you can't be a great physicist or chemist without knowing math, right? That's how I think about music theory. And music theory, we can come back to this. It's kind of a difficult word or, or like thing to describe, I've always thought, or, or to like define to someone who's like maybe not very musical. Like what is music theory? Hmm. Um, it's almost like chess theory in the same way. Again, another thing chess and music have in common, you know, very chess true. theory is, is a thing, you know, and yeah. it's a huge world of its own. Chess opening theory, end game theory, you know. Um, and like music theory, you can study it all only with notation. You don't, you don't ever need to actually look at a chessboard. Yeah, uh, you don't actually like have to yeah. perform anything to yeah. actually study theory. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But with music theory, it's and I may have said that way back in the days too. You can be a good musician without knowing music theory, but you can't be a great one. I'm, I'm convinced. Mm. And mm-hmm. like, and even what I would tell other students, like colleagues of ours back in school, that yeah, I mean. Music theory could kind of be a bitch sometimes, like having to do all these counterpoint exercises, they weren't fun, right? Um, uh, they could be fun puzzles sometimes, but again, like, again, it, it could also be tedious. And But the way I, I would look at it is it use music theory as a hack, as like a trick, as a, as a sh- shortcut, I'm almost tempted to say, to accomplishing more musically, to really know uh, like exactly what key you're in at what time what exact harmony this is you're playing right i mean if you learn all that stuff in the piece you're working on you're going to play the piece better it's kind of magical how that works without you consciously thinking about playing the piece better just knowing more about the piece knowing the theory the gears that's working underneath it almost tempted to say it like frees you up to just be creative now you know kind of have that foundation that sorry foundation there and I mean coming from the jazz world you can't even be mediocre at jazz without knowing knowing music theory right because <laughs> I mean you need to know music theory to improvising to know even just just basic you know blue scale scales and just um and then again even when you get to just like the intermediate level you just really need to know how the circle of fifths and the cycle of fourths work how you know relationships via a tritone of different keys different sorts of octatonic scales and uh you know uh yeah just music in it's like on paper craftness you just need to have a solid grasp of to to play jazz and understand jazz and, and it's so apparent with jazz right off the bat right off the bat with classical music it can be you can become a good classical musician i think without knowing much theory but you can't be a great one you just mm-hmm. will have something missing that will prevent you from reaching that next step but okay i've been talking no 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 i think everything you're saying is really interesting and just real quick on that jazz thing i mean i think we've talked before about the similarities between jazz and baroque music and i think it's it's interesting to me that i don't think you could be a great yeah i don't even think you could be a good baroque musician without Mm. knowing music theory because for the same reason that so much of especially if you're if you play if you're a keyboardist you know, so so much of your part is is left to just you know you have to realize the figured bass, right? There, there's a lot that's where in the score, just to like speak in non-technical terms, like the mm-hmm. music that's written out for you is is not a lot of what you actually have to play, right? There's they have like the the bass line, and then they have it's written like um, these these numbers underneath, which tell you basically how to how to like fill out the chords. But then everything else on top of that, you have to do that on your own. And then obviously all the ornamentations and, and all that kind of stuff. So 
I think if you don't know theory, you're just going to be a subpar, uh, subpar Baroque musician. In a way, yeah. which I think if you want to be like a like an orchestral musician, you could maybe get away with not knowing so much theory. So, I mean, so wait, I haven't heard yours yet. Under, over, or properly rated? Oh, sorry. You're really keeping us to the form here. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, you're, you're getting me here because this is the one that I'm, I don't know. I'm going to say that it is underrated as well. So we get... Boom. Get, wait, we have to have yeah, the sound effect. We, we got to get, yeah, get the stamp out, man. I see all agrees. Yeah. But I will, yeah. Have an, I will have an asterisk on it. And yes. So I, I, everything that you said, I second. And I'm very interested in music theory. And so it's, it's very easy for me to second all that. My asterisk, I guess, would be that as I've been getting older, I do wonder if you started a music school from, from, from the ground up, hmm. would you make music theory a requirement? Because I'm not sure that I would anymore. If your career path is going to be like practicing your excerpts and taking auditions and then winning an orchestra job in which, you know, you don't necessarily, it's not super intellectual work. You need to be very good at your instrument, but yeah. a lot of the sort of decisions of music making are taken away from you. Right, right. Um, yeah. So it's not, you're, there's I not see that where much, you're going. Yeah. Does that person, which is, I would say, but a majority of the people that are in music mm. school are trying to go in that route. And do they really need yeah. to learn, you know, post-tonal theory? And I, 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 yeah, because I know what you're going to say that um, learning it will will sort of it's like the whole argument of you know when are we ever going to use it? You're probably not, but just learning it will make it learning it will make you a better musician, um, yeah. et cetera, et cetera. But right, no, I, um, I was going to bring and, that up, and I I concur with that, but um, <laughs> I just I can't help. Maybe it's a bit defeatist of me, but I can't help okay. but think would it would it just not be easier if because again I'm thinking of all those people that we heard just whining about music theory. Yeah. Would it not yeah. be easier to just be like, oh, okay, so you're not that interested? Fine, that's cool. Yeah, so you don't, you I, don't here, need to do it. <laughs> here, here's my counter. Here, here's my counter to that, which would be you kind of said when, when people say this about anything, like even geometry in high school, right? When when am I ever going to use this? I always pause. Like, do you know how our, how our education system works? <laughs> like, you're never going to use any of this, like ever, like literally never. <laughs> like, pretty much everything you learned in the classroom in high school, you'll never use. <laughs> yeah. The way our education system works is, you know, there's a series of hurdles, and you just have to prove you're smart enough to pass this hurdle to get onto the next one, right? That's yeah, or, di- that's or just, diligent enough, really. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> um, but no, I also do think too, like the act of learning it established a wiring in your brain that wasn't there beforehand. Uh, but also, you know, I would just say, like, you're you like music theory, I do, right? I'm gonna put you yeah. on the spot, right? Yeah. But would you have taken it at the beginning if you weren't required to? I don't know. Like, so as an educator, I come to it from that, you know, unlocking the potential streeter in young yeah. students. You know, I That's think... That's true. The requirement is an easy way because I don't, I don't come from a musical background myself. Yeah. So I didn't know any music theory before go- going to school. So learning it in a required class, it like blew my mind and I got very interested in it, right? So yeah. a requirement is an easy way to get people in who may not have known about it previously, you know? Yeah. So that's true. Yeah. That, that, that there's definitely a merit to that. As to the argument about making you like just the process of learning it, making like rewiring your brain to be better, mm-hmm. um, I think that's true of like early education. But by the time that we're in college, I'm not sure. I'm not sure how much it's doing any any real that's work. Fair. And, that's fair. And some of the musicians I know who are very good musicians and they're they're accomplished and successful and have won auditions and have good jobs. Mm-hmm. They don't know. 
they remember next to nothing about music theory. They don't spend any amount of their day thinking about it. And they, they play beautifully, they play intuitively. They're not gonna come up with the most interesting, unique recording of, you know, this Bach solo yeah. suite, you know, ever. Yeah. But they play well enough to win a job. They're professionals. Yeah. Well, and, okay. and they don't spend any time of their day thinking about music theory. And as far as they're concerned, that was just like a class that they had to get through in college, much like we had to get through geometry in high school. Yeah. What do you okay. say to those guys? Yeah, so I would say, no, fair. And that's totally fine and maybe even great. But I think that's a different topic because I think what we're talking mm. about here is should you be able to get a bachelor's of music without taking music theory? That's true. Yeah. When you say it like that, that's a bit absurd. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right. I mean, yeah, yeah. That, that's the way I'm kind of looking at it too. I mean, not only from like you know if I if I were in charge of my own music school, but also I just think if you're gonna if it's a music school, if it's you know an academic approach to music, which I think is wonderful. I mean, I think music is one of the greatest academic subject that sounds stupid but but, yeah. but but i think it is you know i mean, I mean if you it, go to... it was part of the the classical education in, in in ancient greece right like it was part of the the, the the quadrivium after the trivium like it was part of the essential things that you had to learn yeah totally because uh, it was paired with what it was paired with arithmetic i think i think like arithmetic you learn and... arithmetic and then you learn music right because yeah, because yeah. yeah it's really cool i i'm all actually really fascinated by the stuff how education like views on education and like disciplines have like changed right because hmm. back then you know it wasn't seen as like a college of fine arts college of science college of this right all these different buildings but back then it was these linked subjects where the second was like the more in application and introspection of the first that's right? exactly like, it yeah right so, so yeah so music is like applied mathematics yeah you studied arithmetic and then you studied music you would study logic then you study philosophy yeah right you study geometry then you'd study astronomy you know it's like right. which is i think and then this was all part of like one continuum one cycle that like again the way they viewed it was the same harmonic ratios that that govern the laws of music are the same ones that you know govern the orbit of the planets and stuff and the beauty of art and stuff right and they that's yeah. That's the way they thought. Which And we very you know, much lost that, I think. Yeah, sadly. I think I'm not saying that's the best way to set up an education system, but I think there's something to be gained by approaching things that way. You know? Yeah. I think it makes us more interesting musicians as well. It makes us more the kind of musicians that I want to see in the world, right? Mm -hmm. I, I do have that I do have this conflict where I think, you know, if people don't want to learn it, why make them? But I do think Having more people interested in having more musicians thinking about music theory daily, in the in the way that they apply theory to their to their practice, mm -hmm. um, I think would would be it would make for a world of more intellectual musicians than we have. Sadly, that's not yeah. necessarily the case. I mean, there are many there's many different kinds of musicians as, as there are people, right? There, well, there are intuitive musicians. There are sort of physical, athletic musicians. There are intellectual musicians. Um, there yeah. are musicians who are very poetic. Um, in their sensibilities, yeah. and I think the ones that I gravitate to the most are, you know, I think of someone like Glenn Gould or Andre Schiff mm -hmm. or even Leonard Bernstein, who seems very, he's, he has a soul of a poet, but, um, you know, I think he has the brain of a, of a mathematician, really. And, you know, these people were, these people were great theorists, you know, they, they, they yeah. had, a, if you read some of uh, Gould's essays on on uh on just sort of analyzing pieces by like Webern, you know it's clear yeah. that he had a he had a, a great theoretical mind on him 
same with Andre Schiff. You know, I just was watching a lecture recital of him where he was he was talking for you know half an hour, forty five minutes on on the different ways that um, a trill can function in a phrase. You know, mm, these are the kinds of things that are so interesting in in music to me that uh, yeah. that are that are maybe lost in the more traditional aspects of music education where they focus on the performance and the nerves and how to win an audition and the excerpts <laughs> and, you know, playing the, right eat the morning of <laughs> Yeah. And, you know, playing all the right notes at the right tempo and all that stuff. But, yeah. you know, the simple question of, you know, why is a trill? What function does that serve? What different functions does that serve? And how does that affect the way that you play this mm-hmm. particular trill? You know, yeah. that's music theory. You know, I think people, yeah. people, there's a sense in which people think that music theory is this dry academic subject. And for me, it has never been that. It, I think that, too, is a modern distinction, right? I think of Bach and the way that he later in life joined a, a theoretical society, a music theory society yeah. that was also partly, I think, a mathematical society. And uh, I think some of his greatest pieces he, he wrote for their for their analysis, which is the, the art of fugue, the contrapunctus mm-hmm. fugues. They're written as applied mathematics, right? As, yeah. um, and I don't think he recognized that distinction between the study of a theory and the practice of it. things about I guess music in general especially music theory and the same is true of like say chess theory or something it's not like a closed book you know you can it's still like in development right and always has been right hasn't been like a static thing like you know Debussy said rules don't make music music makes rules Hmm. right and yeah like with Tchaikovsky he introduced new ways of harmony right that then became like standard things of music theory and stuff right yeah uh so that's what i think is so cool about music theory is how dynamic it is and can be and jazz musicians know this really well because we might cut this particular specific but like streeter for an example like what's kind of cool if you're playing chords up a piano like a c major then just move up to like a d minor you just move everything up one white key so a, a, a dfna what's cool is you can put a diminished passing chord in between it so a c sharp e and g would be diminished and then that and then goes to a d you can even add a flat nine or a flat a b flat to make it a fully d- diminished seventh chord mm-hmm. c sharp e g b flat and that sounds really cool actually it's really jazzy the reason it works is the upper structure of an a major seven chord so a c sharp e g would be a major seven uh-huh. and that goes this was music theory that Charlie Parker and Dizzy Gillespie just invented in the 50s. You know, yeah. and you start to, they started using this in some solos of theirs, right? And they probably just did it by ear. They did it by ear, but it's actually like notes of like um like Dizzy Gillespie and, and Charlie Parker just hanging out and just chatting about this and writing oh. stuff down and putting notes in the music. Brilliant. Yeah. E- even better. Yeah, so no, they they like thought about this and stuff. And now that's like a standard thing you hear in jazz all the time. And it's like standard taught it's now taught in like jazz improv, any jazz improv class will teach you in a diatonic scale you can use uh, a diminished seventh chord as a passing chord between scale tones so yeah but that's just one example of yeah 
music theory is dynamic. Yeah, they just made it, and now it's now now it's music theory. And what I love about it is that it it has two appeals. Like one, which is a the sort of appeal of mathematics when when you when you watch someone doing a really cool proof, right? Um, there's something there about how how neat it is, and and how yeah. um, there's something about the 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 way that is esoteric as well. It's 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 brilliantly sort of for someone who doesn't understand math very well. Um, yeah. otherworldly but also yet uh, you know it's it's neat and and beautiful and music theory like this example that you gave is a perfect one um it has that quality it's like a proof it's like a proof yeah that just, it is, it it is just, like a proof it's, it's a proof yeah. it's, it's partly like a magic trick like i was mm. as you were describing it to me i was you know picturing the chords in my head and hearing them and then when you when you said the thing about um about the 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 a in the yeah. in the in the bass i heard it and that was like a, it was like a magic trick right yeah um so that's like really cool and it's it's applied you know it's it's not it's like if the coolest proofs in the world also you know made a really cool sound and like you could you could you could also just sort of and maybe that's how mathematicians actually do enjoy proofs but, <laughs> yeah. but it's yeah. it has a twin twin pleasure to it right yeah or so, and if sorry i realize now we i i saw your eyes and i realized you understood it but i didn't ever fully explain it <laughs> in case we don't cut this yeah but no, so yeah, going from C to a up just to from a C major chord up just one step to a D minor chord. The reason you can put the C sharp, E, and G in between that that forms a diminished chord is because that's the upper structure of an A7 chord. A7 would be A, C sharp, E, and G, and that is the natural dominant to D minor, which is the chord you're going to, which is why that sounds so hip and so it sounds so logical a- after after you play it you know? yeah um, even though you would have maybe thought about it at first would not have thought about it first and yeah in hindsight it's almost too obvious but there's no there's not really any records of that happening in music until like charlie parker you know <laughs> so yeah i think that's pretty great maybe if you could indulge us in the post-production you could play play that um, oh hell on, yeah on your on your spanking new kawaii and oh baby uh, yeah and we can we can get a we can get an audio clip of it but but yeah so i mean that's the thing about music theory again almost like how we teach math i think we teach math the wrong way we teach it as something as a set of things to know when really it's a world of mystery and ever-changing vagueness and opinions and arguments and stuff right and that's yeah. the way music theory is too. It's an intrinsically fascinating subject, and I think it's worth studying for that reason, yeah. right? Just it yeah. doesn't need an explanation besides the fact that um, it exists and it's a valid way to understand the world. And that's it's interesting and it's it's a little bit crazy that it that we can figure it out, but yeah, it's there. Yeah, um, and, and and the way my like young piano teacher, well, not she, she was young when I, when I, I was young, when uh, my piano teacher kind of explained it, which kind of caught me onto it which you may take argument with this, but I think it hits on the right point where some of these composers were just geniuses like Tchaikovsky, Bach, right? They were just, you know, my brain just can't, you know, comprehend theirs sort of deal. But music theory is now a tool we've invented to actually explain their geniusness. So us mortals can actually understand what's going on. (laughs) I think that's exactly right. I think, I mean, it is, it is necessarily the case that people like us are, you know, we, uh, we have to settle for a little more than you know, cu- coloring in the, the margins of the pages written by these people, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, 
and so so you know we we have to you know if that if we're lucky yeah. right right <laughs> um so yeah I, I think if we if we didn't have theory then bach would be impenetrable hmm. right yeah he would, he would he would be doing he may as well be doing black magic for for all we know but. yeah come on let's face it the real reason we think you should learn music theory it's a rite of passage <laughs> yeah <laughs> like like we were talking about music school earlier. No, you no. As part of music school, you have to be staying up to like three in the morning because you procrastinated on this whole theory assignment. You had to like do all this part writing for harmonic analysis, and it's due in six hours. <laughs> I suffered so everyone else has to as well. But exactly. uh, um, I have one real mm-hmm. quick point. Um, I always tell students and anyone else who's who I'm just talking to about music generally. I always say um, the the most important thing if you're learning music is to to learn to read music, like really learn to read it, you know? Mm. Um, don't just, first of all, I mean, there's some people who don't even want to learn to read music, but I think there are even a lot of professional musicians who don't, who barely know how to read. They know how to read only in the, in the most cursory sense, right? They, they can read a piece of music and they, and they can sort of eventually glean secrets from it. Mm. But they're really, reading at the equivalent of like a third grade level right and by um, this you mean they know how to play a piece of music or like if you put yeah. it in front of them they can yeah they can play it on their instrument fine right yeah. but like not yeah. the way a conductor reads a score maybe. that's exactly like what a, i mean yeah, i mean okay. yeah and i and i've been noticing this more and more with i don't mean to throw anybody on the bus so if anyone's listening who does this i'm sorry but um i've been seeing more and more people it seems posting pictures of their scores in which they have like um colored in parts you know they like highlight like notes everywhere like yeah like annotations like, like arrows and highlights yeah or like and... or they, they have like one line colored up in pink and another one in like green oh you um, mean like con- conductor scores yeah conductor scores oh like, yeah okay yes um, yes they're like all colored up it looks like a it looks like a a, a map for a boy scouts thing rather than a <laughs> rather than a, a manuscript you know and yep. and i kind of <laughs> i always look at that and think but why i mean shouldn't you i, I can't you... imagine <laughs> exactly. I was trying to avoid saying that, but that, that, that's why I went with Boy Scouts. <laughs> yeah, it looks. I just. I, 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 I we have to keep I, that, but we'll just bleep it, and we'll yeah. let them guess what what yeah, I actually yeah. said. Exactly. Exactly. If you learn to read really well, you have a flexibility with music that I think is is um. Mm is really crucial and I think that flexibility is, is also what music theory gets you and mus- doing music theory a lot will also help you learn to read better right so for example um, in the case of Baroque ornamentation but I'm sure it's also true with jazz improv there's people who, who spend so much time trying to craft an ornament for like a piece of Baroque music and it ends up being relatively uninspired or something right or like people had done it before um, or they're doing little more than filling in thirds or something like that. Mm-hmm. But I think if you learn to to read a score and read, you know, bass lines and figured bass, and and you can sort of understand it intuitively, like you do a text, you can you can start reading and and seeing all the possibilities of where the music can go. That it didn't go this way just because you know it's the same with reading, right? You, when you start a sentence, um, you know, the dog walked along the, you know, your brain is starting to already fill in 
all the possibilities. It doesn't have to just be road. It could be the bridge, mm. you know, along the canal while his master was talking to the pretty girl and forgot to tend to his leash or something. You know, you, yeah, yeah. You, you have a facility with language that you take for granted that um, most people don't even get close to that with music. And I'm not saying that I'm close to it, but it's it's, it's worth aspiring towards. And I think yeah. music theory is music theory is probably if you're not a if you're not like a genius at birth music theory is probably the only way you can get there no that's so true like you know you're playing a piece you know in c major right and then you need to put in and and then that you know i ask you just to play something in c major improvise something then i say play in a flat where does that take you right how can you use that to go so right and what are the possibilities what 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 can't you do right that's all music theory and that's composing really that's and composing is just music (laughs) like like as performers we we, we're we're performers because we're performers because we can't compose essentially we we just you know we're not we're not good enough to compose that's what i always thought and so (laughs) and also i just have to throw out to uh the beatles study you added to the list of people that studied music theory the beatles like uh, george harrison in particular I, i remember reading some notes of his studying bach and i forget what other composer he was looking at but yeah no they knew music theory. They really, really knew music theory. Yeah. So, uh, like in Penny Lane, you know, iconic song, greatest Beatles song because it has the piccolo trumpet solo. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, I think there's what six key changes in that song. It, I think it, it might uh, be like thirteen or something. It's, yeah. It's it's not, but ludicrous, but you don't yeah. even notice really. It sounds so organic and natural, and it's it it do, it doesn't go to thirteen keys or whatever. It just you know it's going back and forth between two very distant keys actually, and you don't notice when it happens or why it happens or that it even happens and the reason is because of music theory they knew how to do it so you you didn't know us but your brain did 